smartcast you're listening to a hindustan times production brought to you by hd smartcast hello and welcome to a new episode of 1947 the road to indian independence a special podcast series presented to you by the hindustan times to mark india at 75 In 1939, the Second World War broke out in Europe, and India suddenly found itself as a participant in the war on behalf of the Allied powers. There was one problem: no Indian had been consulted. Indian nationalists were clear; they were opposed to fascism in Europe, but wanted independence at home first. In the face of British unwillingness to recognize and address Indian aspirations, the nationalist tempo increased, and in 1942. The Mahatma issued what was to become one of the most powerful slogans of the freedom struggle. He declared it was time for the British to quit India. The Quit India movement commenced and saw a fierce British crackdown in what was to become one of the final chapters of India's freedom struggle. How did Indian nationalists respond to the war? What was India's involvement in the war? Why did Gandhi call for the Quit India movement? What was its nature and impact? Did it really hasten independence or did it actually deepen the divisions within the Indian polity with the Muslim League as well as leaders such as B R Ambedkar staying away To explain this phase of India's freedom struggle I am delighted to welcome to the podcast the eminent historian Srinath Raghavan Srinath's book India's War World War 2 and the Making of Modern South Asia is the definitive book on the subject and we are thrilled to have him On that note welcome Srinath Thank you Prashant lovely to be here Take us back to the late 1930s the congress had participated in provincial elections it was in power in many provinces and then the war breaks out How do the british see the role of india and how do indian nationalists respond to the moment So in order to understand britain's expectations of what india would do in the event of another war in europe I think it's useful for us to remember that india had for a long time been the main strategic reserve of the british empire in asia it was the british indian army a large standing army which was funded entirely out of revenues that the british collected in india which enabled britain not only to conquer the entire subcontinent as a whole but also to exert its influence on other parts of southeast asia west asia and north and east africa as well right so india is very important from a strategic perspective to the british now in this particular context the british expectation was that india would effectively do what it did in the first world war and more and in the first world war again the indian army was expanded to about a million and a half men in uniform and they were deployed in europe they were deployed in the middle east uh, you know india was a very important player in wartime supplies economic assistance and so on so the going in expectation in september 1939 was that you know this should happen almost by fiat but what the british particularly their representative in india the viceroy lord lenlithgow had not reckoned with was the fact that between the first and the second world war was the heyday of indian nationalism now having seen successive waves of massive mobilization under the nationalist sign 
and then of course the Congress Party, as you correctly noted, taking part in the 1937 provincial elections and coming to power in a number of areas. It was almost inconceivable for the nationalists that their view on India's role and participation in the war should not even be considered. So Lilithgar was effectively harking back to a very old imperial impulse, one which assumed that India was, as one British Prime Minister put it, an oriental barrack on the English seas. Yeah? So it is there for Britain's taking to be used as an entity for power protection. And this was something that the Indian nationalists were not willing to do. And of course, the nationalists themselves did not speak in one voice. There were, as you alluded, many different voices. But I think it's fair to say that the dominant sort of narrative, particularly within the Indian National Congress, even though there were divisions there as well, was that if this is indeed a war against fascism and a war for democracy, then Britain had to give effect to the principle of democracy in India by announcing that India would be given its freedom. And that, of course, was not forthcoming, which is what was the root of the tension between the Congress and the British Raj throughout the war period. But of course, there were other actors as well. It was precisely to tap into the political strength of other actors that the British went back to a formula that they had used, for instance, during the roundtable conferences to project Congress as not being the sole representative of the Indian people. And this is when you speak in your book about the enhanced engagement with Baba Sahib Ambedkar, uh, with liberals, with uh, Savarkar, uh, and then the Muslim League. So tell us about these actors, the diversity of India's political spectrum, and, and how they responded. Yeah, I mean, important thing to remember is that even compared to the period of the early 1930s, which is when the Roundtable Conference was, uh, you know, convened. And think of the Roundtable, right? What is the idea of a Roundtable is that everybody is in a position of equality. Of course, Gandhi kept insisting throughout uh, his participation that the Congress was the only party which could speak for the nation as a whole. Everyone else, Gandhi would argue, represented sectional interests and sectional viewpoints whereas the Indian National Congress, by definition, spoke for the nation. Right? Of course, it was a claim which was contested by others, by the Hindu Mahasabha, by Ambedkar, by many others, the states and so on. Now, the important thing is that the Congress performed extremely well in the 1937 election. In fact, you could argue that the beginning of the Congress sort of dominance in Indian electoral politics effectively begins with the elections of 1936-37. And it stretches all the way to the 1967 election, you know, throughout this 30-year period, the Congress is a dominant force. So this is the moment of the emergence of the Congress in an electoral sort of, you know, as a powerhouse, not just of mass mobilization, you know, from time to time, but in this particular format. So it becomes even more imperative once Lilithgau understands that the Congress is not going to be cooperative, that the British have to find other means of cutting to size the Congress's claim that it spoke for all of India which is when, uh, you know, invitations are sent out by the Viceroy and, you know, he has a stream of visitors coming up to Simla. The diary is kind of packed for the entire sort of autumn of 1939. Uh, you have, you know, people like Jinnah who's coming in. Jinnah, whose party had not performed particularly well in the 1937 elections. In fact, the two major Muslim-dominated provinces, the Punjab and the Bengal, uh, actually the Muslim League did not sort of form governments. Uh, in a very real sense, the Muslim League was in wilderness. And Jinnah was kind of looking around, casting about for ways to think about doing this. It is in this context that he says, you know, Muslims have to stop being counted as a minority. 
they have to count as a co-equal to the Congress. And the only way to do it is to claim that we are also a nation. Right. So that's how the two nation theory ends. And Lilith Gao is very supportive of these ideas. In fact, he encourages Jinnah. He tells Jinnah that please make constructive proposals. Give us an opening to address your concerns. Right. Similarly, there's an attempt to bring in Vinayak Damodar Savarkar of the Hindu Mahasabha. Uh, a person who was at one point of time, you know, one of the greatest enemies of the British Empire and the Raj itself, right? I mean, he was a sort of revolutionary, he had been imprisoned, of course, he came out and then, you know, he had kind of uh, started this party in the 1930s and then uh, was once again bottled. And Savarkar again, you know, was willing to support the war, partly because he saw this as an opportunity to increase Hindu representation in the Indian army. The Indian Army was, and you know, we can talk about it in a little while. It was a somewhat unrepresentative institution, driven primarily from ethnic minorities and, of course, people from your country, which is the Gurkhas. Uh, and you know, Savarkar saw this as an opportunity, both for militarizing Hindu society, as he called it, and also as an opportunity for industrialization of all of India. So, different people had different things that they hoped to get by way of, so to speak, cooperating with the war effort. And among them was also Baba Sahib Ambedkar, uh, who was also, in, in a sense, uh, on a bit of a loose limb by the end of the 1930s, uh, you know, with his independent Labour Party, uh, not particularly doing well in the 1937 elections, again, even in strongholds like Mumbai. And uh, Ambedkar, again, saw this as an opportunity for upward social mobility for the Dalits. Dalits who had been, according to him, historically deprived of one of the most stable sources of employment, which is in the military. And Ambedkar believed that if the Dalits were to sort of cooperate with the war effort, they could in turn collectively bargain with the government as it were, which is what he would successfully do later on and get them, you know, so to speak, reservations or affirmative action quotas for government employment, central government employment for the first time in Indian history, which would then get subsequently, you know, uh, put into provisions after independence as well. So what you see, therefore, is that the British have their own desire to cut the Congress to size. But... The adversaries of the Congress have their own set of reasons for wanting to cooperate with the British government and even work in tandem with each other. Uh, the other person, of course, from my home state of Tamil Nadu was uh, the great E.V. Ramaswamy Periyar, right, who, uh, again, you know, was supportive of Ambedkar's call that, you know, we should cooperate with the war effort, that we do not want the Congress to lord it over everyone else and so on. So, yes, the nationalist movement was not a monolith as we tend to think of it, but it had many different voices and it, it was a many voiced chorus. That's the way I think about it. What was the rationale of the Crips mission and why did it not work out? Well, I mean, so the Crips mission comes to India in March, April 1942. And we must remember that the war takes a decisive turn for the worse as far as the British Empire in Asia is concerned from December 1941. As the Japanese, the very day, the same day that the Japanese launched their attacks on Pearl Harbor, uh, in the United States of America. They also attack British Imperial and French Imperial and Dutch Imperial possessions in Southeast Asia. That, in effect, really put the jitters on to the British ruling classes. So, in a very real sense, um, Winston Churchill, who by this time had become Prime Minister and who was, an, as we know, an arch-conservative imperialist, forced effectively by the Americans and President Franklin Delano Roosevelt to say that, you know, you have to make some constructive outreach to the Indian nationalists, particularly to the Congress. Because if you do not do that, with the Japanese army having kicked the Indian army out of Burma and poised almost ready to invade eastern India, 
it seemed that Britain's hold over the subcontinent itself was now going to be very seriously endangered. By this time, Malaya, Singapore, everything had very quickly fallen, as had the Dutch and the uh, sort of French possessions in Southeast Asia. So this was the background. It was a geopolitical background with pressure from the most important ally as far as the British were concerned, which was the United States of America, that the Crips mission was sent. But Crips's mandate was kind of quite limited. You know, all he could promise was some kind of dominion status, which is to say status akin to, you know, New Zealand, Australia, South Africa and Canada after the war ended. It was, as you know, Gandhi is supposed to have said, I think it's an apocryphal quote, but it's such a nice one that it's worth repeating even if it's apocryphal. He said the Crips mission's offer or Crips offer really was a post-dated check on a failing bank, right? He said there's no way that that can be taken seriously as a down payment today. What the Congress insisted was immediate participation in government, including control of the defense affairs to be entrusted to representatives of Indian nationalist uh, sort of uh, this. And that the British were totally unwilling to do. And eventually, because of the Quit India movement and so on, the British got a good excuse to crack down on the Indian nationalist movement. And we can talk about that uh, in just a while. In fact, take us there. The Crips mission fails, the nationalists reject it, and the Congress then holds its session in Bombay in August 1942. This is when Gandhi declares it's time for the British to quit India. Why the movement at this stage and how does the movement evolve? Well, the first thing is to just maybe take a step back and understand how the Congress was trying to deal with all of this before we come to what happens in the Quit India movement. So to cut a very long story short, basically Congress ministries resign soon after the war is declared. There is an internal divide within the Congress. There are important leaders like Chakravarti Rajagopalachari, Rajaji, who believed that, you know, having gotten access to power, it was not a wise thing to sort of dim it voluntarily and go back into the wilderness. Uh, there were others like Jawaharlal Nehru who believed that the British Empire is, is a back number and India and the Congress cannot be seen as clinging to power at such a time, especially when the British were unwilling to make any compromises. So all the Congress ministries resign. And then there is this prolonged debate within the Congress on what should uh, the Congress's position on the war be. The Congress is in a bind because at some level, they do want to support a war which is being waged against Nazi Germany and Mussolini's Italy. But at the same time, they do not want to be seen as supporting the British war effort simply because the British were unresponsive to nationalist aspirations in the context of the war. So they are caught in a bind. And then there are internal divisions, right? Like Gandhi is quite keen not to launch a mass civil disobedience movement. Because he says that if we do this at this point of time, we will not have the support of the Muslims. We will not have the support of the Dalits. So in a very real sense, you know, he was actually not particularly keen. So, you know, a kind of a compromise is worked out. There's something called an individual satyagraha or a civil disobedience thing which is started. Uh, but the ICD or the, you know, individual civil disobedience campaign just peters out. People are imprisoned and then, you know. So there's a very real sense in which the Congress is also struggling to understand what it should do. And it is in this context that the Japanese attack happens. And then we have to really sort of move away from the Congress and understand what the impact of the Japanese offensives and victories was on India at large. You know, there is a, as the historian, you know, Indivar Kamtekar puts it, a shiver which runs through India at this point of time. Indians are very concerned at all levels that the war is very quickly going to come to India. 
that there is going to be a Japanese attack on India. In fact, there are sporadic Japanese air raids which are carried out on certain eastern Indian, you know, cities and towns. Uh, there are a few drop bombs dropped in Calcutta. Some things happen in Vishakhapatnam. Some, you know, air raids happen in and around Madras or Chennai as it is called today. And that itself leads to a huge amount of popular unrest. And we know this from an extraordinary sort of, you know, cachet of rumors which have been collected by the police and the administration at that point of time. Indian people at large seem to have believed that the British Empire was at its last legs. All of this was reinforced by the panicky reaction of the local British governments uh, in all of these places. Cities like Calcutta were evacuated. People were told to leave. Important industries, offices, etc. were moved out. Printing presses were moved out. Um, you know, same thing happens in the context of Madras. The city is kind of evacuated post-haste. Um, and all of this leads to a a very fragile and a feverish mood in India. It is in that context that Gandhi finally decides that we need some kind of a, you know, a final sort of reckoning with the British in the context of what's happening. Uh, even though the Americans and others try and reach out to Gandhi to say that, listen, this is perhaps not the time to launch a mass movement. The Japanese are standing right at the doors of India. Uh, but Gandhi says, no, you know, this is the time for us to kind of take a stand. And he gives this famous kind of call of do or die. And what happens thereafter is actually very interesting because the Congress leadership is swooped into prison almost overnight. So what you have by what we think of as a Quit India movement is actually a series of localized, improvised responses to what people thought was the call to do or die and to get the British out of India at one blow. And it is in this context that the wartime kind of social turmoil, which has happened over the last many months, really comes into its own. And what you see is that there is a arc stretching all the way from Western India through the north to Bengal. Southern India, not so much, but nevertheless there, where you have a series of popular uprisings. And the British themselves recognize, Lilithkov says that this is the most dangerous moment for us since the Great Rebellion of 1857. There is absolutely no doubt in anyone's mind because this is happening now spontaneously. There are armed rebellions. There are guerrilla actions which continue even in a year down the line, right? There are all kinds of localized sarkars, etc., which are operating. So this is a moment when subaltern sort of energies are unleashed onto the stage of Indian politics. Uh, not in the way that perhaps Gandhi would have wanted at all. You know, later on, in fact, Gandhi would go for, into a fast because the British would accuse him while he was still in prison, saying that you provoked violence. And if you actually look at Gandhi's speeches at that time, it's quite uncharacteristic. There is a mood in which Gandhi says that, you know, we perhaps need a final resolution. But people interpret that call in their own ways. And their responses can only be understood if we understand this kind of febrile mood in which India stands in 1942. How does this eventually end? Well, uh, in the first place, the British decide to crack down quite strongly, right? Uh, and the Indian army is kind of deployed internally to quell uh, unrest, even including peaceful demonstrations, etc., in a very serious way. Uh, you know, post the Jallianwalabagh massacre, the British Indian army actually had developed various kinds of systems of checks and balances to ensure that, you know, those kinds of actions did not happen again. Um, you know, for instance, your military law books were rewritten in different ways. Command authority was taken away from lower levels and so on. But faced with this existential crisis of the summer of 1942, uh, the British actually throw all kinds of restraints down to the wind. 
And again, we have one important legacy from there, which is called the Armed Forces Special Powers Ordinance, which is the precursor to the Armed Forces Special Powers Act, right? Which was then enacted in 1957 in the context of the Nagaland sort of insurgency, which was actually bought in as an ordinance uh, by the British government during this period. Under the Defense of India rules and the Armed Forces Special Powers Ordinance, the British really were able to do it. I mean, they did things which they had not done for a very long time, like using aircraft against uh, sort of crowds which were massed, using machine guns to sort of mow down people. And it was a very brutal crackdown. And that ensured that within um, by the end of the year, you know, much of the main centers of popular uprising were there. As I said, some of the armed uprising in terms of small groups, etc., continued well into 1943, uh, in, in some cases, perhaps even up to early 1944. But uh, the main sort of thrust of the movement had been contained uh, through very strong, violent means uh, in this period. And of course, throughout uh, the next couple of years, effectively, the top Congress leadership and including even the middle rank to a very large degree were all imprisoned and, and thrown into prison. There was another stream of uh, the nationalist movement, which was, you know, operating in parallel. This was, of course, led by Netaji. INA had been formed. They were a part of the Japanese offensive that you earlier described. How did the Congress see Netaji at this moment? Well, I mean, the first thing to remember is that, you know, the first INA, the Indian National Army, is formed in Southeast Asia, even before Subhash Bose comes to um, that particular theatre. Right? Because Subhash Bose initially escapes from Afghanistan to the Soviet Union and thence to Germany. Uh, and, you know, he spent some time in Italy and, you know, he's trying to raise an India Independence League in Germany. When that doesn't work out, that is when he uh, moves. And because he has seen the Japanese make spectacular advances in Southeast Asia, that's when he decides to travel east and hook up with the Japanese. Now, even before he has come there, and part of the reason he went there was that he already knew that there was something called an Indian National Army, which was being recruited from prisoners of war who were captured by the Indian Army. You know, very large numbers of them had to surrender in Singapore. Uh, you know, after the British had overrun Malaya as well. So from these, many volunteers were taken. And that is how the Indian National Army's colonel was already formed. But the first Indian National Army was led by a man called Captain Mohan Singh, uh, who called himself General Mohan Singh later. Uh, you know, that didn't work out. Uh, and by the time Subhash Bose was there, nevertheless, there was an opportunity to sort of mobilize around the colonel. Of course, it was Bose's genius that he was not only able to uh, expand the Indian National Army by bringing in more uh, prisoners of war and others, but was also able to galvanize the Indian community of expatriate Indians in the region. And through the use of media like radio, etc. and broadcast, he was able to tell the Indian people that there was an Indian National Army which was waiting to liberate India. Right? And the uh, Indian National Army worked sort of closely with the Imperial Japanese Army. Uh, I don't think the Indian National Army's importance was because of its operational effectiveness. It was a political statement that the very same group of people on whom the British relied to keep their power in India intact, which is the Indian soldiers, could now give up their loyalty to the empire and actually walk over onto the other side. That was the phenomenal political message which went out. And in some ways, that was a very important thing because ultimately for the British, the real challenge during the Second World War was that, you know, they expanded the army very quickly from just short of 200,000 to about two and a half million, right? There's an extraordinary expansion. But when you expand it in this way, you can no longer only go to those few select groups called the martial races, whose loyalty you had secured over multiple generations of service personnel, right? And these came from standard communities. 
the Dutch Sikhs in Punjab, the Punjabi Muslims, the Pathans of the Northwest Frontier Province, the Jats, the Rajputs, Gurkhas of course from Nepal, uh, the Dogras from Jammu and so on. So this is a very sort of a selectively recruited and held army. Now that pattern has to change. There is a phenomenal expansion which happens, which means all kinds of new communities and groups of people are coming in. Many of these are people who have grown up under the shadow of the Indian nationalist movement and its mobilizations in the preceding decade. So they are political in a way that, say, for instance, you would not find that many soldiers in the First World War being so overtly political, right? I mean, there is, for instance, a fantastic letter that I came across when I was researching this book of a very young Gadwani recruit. He must be 16 years old, you know, who was put up for court-martial because he had written a letter to his commanding officer saying that, you know, as an Indian Jawan, I get paid this much of money per day. Whereas the British Tommy, who is serving with me in the same area, gets five times the same amount. And Gandhiji says we are all born equal. So why is that we have such differential in terms of base and you know service conditions? So that kind of ideology of Indian nationalism and the idea of a nation in the making was something that these people brought with them. So the Indian National Army and Subhash Bose's sort of contribution in the context of the war was really to, in some ways, tell the British that they could no longer rely on the Indian Army. And the message went. It went right up to the top. None less than Winston Churchill in 1944 said that we should stop recruiting more people into the army now because this army may just turn around and shoot us in the back. Wow. So here is one stream of the nationalist movement, which is, you know, showing to the British that it could not rely on its coercive apparatus anymore, led by Subhash Bose. The most powerful stream of the national movement led by the Mahatma is challenging the British through a mass movement. Does this then open up the space for Jinnah and Muslim League to really curry favour with the British? And how does that play out? How does the Hindu-Muslim question play out in the intervening years of the war? So the first thing that happens is, of course, that, as I said, the British and Lilith Gao himself encourage Jinnah to kind of formulate political demands, uh, which would be quite different from the earlier questions of saying minority, you know, give us more seats, more representation, separate electorate, etc. Now you ask for parity. Parity can only happen if there is a Muslim nation which can contest the Congress nation. So the Congress nation is now projected as the Hindu nation. So the idea of two nation theory, etc. comes in. There is a whole uh, sort of, you know, resolution which is passed. It's an ambiguous resolution. Historians continue to have vigorous disagreement on whether Jinnah actually wanted to create Pakistan or not. I think it's a somewhat kind of, you know, pointless debate because at some level, history is not just about what the intentions of people, but also their consequences. Uh, you know, consequences maybe in the long run matter even more than intentions. Yeah. So whether Jinnah wanted it or not cannot be settled one way or the other. But what we do know is that the Lahore resolution marked a very important moment. And from the British perspective as well, this was an important moment for them to secure the support of the Muslims. Now, as I said, the two large Muslim-majority provinces in India were Punjab and Bengal. Punjab was the heartland of the Indian army. That is where the three most important communities, uh, you know, which constituted the martial classes, etc. in the Indian army came. Punjab's representation in the Indian army in comparison to its representation as overall proportion of Indian population was totally out of whack. I mean, it is highly overrepresented. Bengal is important because Bengal is most important industrial center. Again, this may sound very strange to us, you know, knowing the history of West Bengal as we do over the last 30 years. 
But at that point of time, Bengal was where much of Indian industry was. There was Bombay and Ahmedabad as well. But in the East, Bengal was very important, uh, particularly in the context of jute factories. Jute was a very important wartime commodity. So the British were very keen that they should have control over these two provinces. Uh, but they were under sort of what you might think of as regional leaders. So in the first instance, the British had to enable Jinnah to kind of assert his authority and that of the Muslim League over the kind of more provincial leaderships, which were not from his party. Once that was accomplished, then at every level, whether it's the Crips mission or so on, the British line was, you know, more or less a standard template, which is to say that, yes, we are willing to discuss the future of India, but the future of India will have to be discussed with all representatives of Indian interests. That includes the Muslims, that includes Dalits, that includes the princely states. So everyone has to come together and some kind of a consensus has to emerge and that, you know, terms cannot be dictated to us by the Congress party alone. So it is in this context that, you know, the Muslim League and of course, the organizational presence of the Muslim League during the Second World War increases tremendously because they have a free reign while the Congress's organization is a shambles. It's imploded uh, completely. And uh, we see the results of all of this in the 1946 elections. In a stunning turnaround from 1937, the Muslim League now performs exceedingly well in the Muslim reserve constituencies, right? while the Congress is barely able to make any dent there. And as I said, even the more perceptive of the Congress leadership, people like Gandhi, were aware that the support of the Muslim masses perhaps could not be taken for granted by the Congress party. And I think that realization was there, uh, though there was also a hope that the idea of Indian unity will see us through this particular period. Do you think then the Quit India movement helped hasten Indian independence or did it actually create the foundations for partition? It did both. Uh, in a sense, the Quit India movement kind of told the British that if they had to face another such movement, which they felt they were facing in 1946, when you have the INA trials, the RIN mutiny, etc., then if they could not be assured of the support of the Indian Armed Forces and the obedience of the Indian Armed Forces, then their ability to put down this kind of a rebellion was going to be very difficult, right? Which is what, as I said, the INA and the whole movement sort of demonstrated. So come 1946, you know, when there are mass uprisings uh, happening in urban, rural India, there's a Tibaga movement happening, you know, there are sort of, uh, you know, uprisings in what we think of as today's Kerala, in parts of uh, tribal Maharashtra and so on, but also urban unrest across India around the Indian National Army trials, and the you know mutiny of the Royal Indian Navy, uh, which which happens across several cities in India and today's Pakistan as well. So, when you are faced with that moment in 1946, the British know that if this becomes another 1942 type scenario, you just do not have an instrument on whose loyalty you can count to put this down. Yeah. So, in a very real sense, the Quit India movement tells the British that the time has really come to move on. So, the question then becomes on what terms and what conditions you are going to do it. But at the same time, yes, paradoxically, uh, freedom also came because the Quit India movement in some ways hastened the divides between this. Right? I mean, again, it's borne out by the very careful scholarship uh, of the last 30 years. You know, uh, historians like Yanindra Pandey and others have shown us that the Quit India movement was predominantly an upper caste male sort of a movement in the context of the Congress party. Uh, now, that is not to take away from what was accomplished, but at the same time, we must recognize its social limitations for what they were. Muslims, Dalits did not participate in quite the same numbers, uh, you know, as the sort of 
dominant castes and the upper castes particularly participated, especially in uh, Western, Northern and Eastern India. So in this context, the Quit India movement therefore uh, accentuated some of these divides, right? So when the moment of independence comes, therefore, at least dealing with one of these contradictions becomes well nigh impossible, which is the Hindu-Muslim contradiction, which then leads to the partition of India itself. How did the destruction caused by the war and the weakening of the empire hasten independence? Well, I think the one very important thing which happens is the elections of 1946 in Britain, 1945-46, right? I mean, as soon as the, the same. Because surprisingly enough, the you know war hero Winston Churchill loses that election. And the reason for that is because the British people and the British electorate back home felt very strongly that it was time for change and that Churchill was not the agent of change. And at the same time, this change also meant a certain kind of a change in Britain's relationship with India as well. So the Labour Party, which comes to power uh, under Clement Attlee for the very first time, uh, is understands that, yes, we'll have to kind of you know move towards a different kind of a relationship with India. But... Even as they are willing to think in terms of independence, they do want to protect at least two things. One is to ensure that India and the Indian Army still remain part of the British Commonwealth's you know, strategic arsenal. So there is an attempt to actually try and see if some kind of a military agreement can also be sort of done so that uh, India remains within this. It is in this context that the British in 1946 are actually not keen on partition, you know whatever may have been the consequences of their earlier policies and even their intentions in sort of promoting disunity in India. You know, in the moment of 1946, the British wanted to keep the Indian army together. That was the reason they tried to prevent partition through various kinds of formulas. But the internal contradictions were too strong. And the third thing which the British wanted really was to preserve their commercial interests, particularly in eastern India, the plantations where British commercial interests were very strong. So in a sense, there were, it was not as if the Labour Party came in with a very greatly enlightened view that listen, India's independence is kind of, you know, that we recognize the strength. They recognized the realities of the fact that Britain was a much weakened power. Britain was bankrupt at the end of the Second World War. Uh, you know, one of the largest creditors of Britain was paradoxically India itself, a country to which Britain had historically exported capital had ended the war with, you know, Britain owing to India 1.3 billion pounds in RSA, right? I mean, that is like the equivalent of about $300 billion today. I mean, so that's the, like the reserve that the Reserve Bank of India, you know, would like to keep uh, in its uh, kitty. So this was the scale of India's contribution to the war. So the entire sort of relationship in some ways had been turned on its head. And it was no longer really sustainable for British to carry on as if nothing else had happened. So for Attlee, you know, as the title of one of the most important books of that time goes, uh, there was a desire to escape from empire. But that escape also did not mean that you want to abandon and just walk away from everything. They were trying to reconfigure the imperial system. They wanted to do different things with India. But as always in politics and history, you know, intentions and desires and consequences and outcomes never match. Right? I mean, that, that is what makes uh, all of this so fascinating. Let me end by going back to your book and the war. Here were 2.5 million Indians who participated in the war. 90,000 of them were killed. Indians played a substantial role in defending the ideas of freedom and, and creating the Second World post-Second World War architecture. India didn't get enough credit for it. Your book, you know, has performed this important service of uh, highlighting India's role. But how did India's participation in the war itself change India and change the world? Yeah, I mean, I think 
it, it definitely sort of you know um, changed India in a sense that it it set India on a course to sort of independence. Independence would have come at some point of time, but the fact that it happened in the time that it happened is almost entirely due to the intervention of the Second World War and India's participation in it, both positively in a sense of the Indian Army's role, India's extraordinary contributions. And again, those contributions, uh, Prashant, came at very great cost to the Indian people. I mean, we all remember the Bengal famine where, where, you know, maybe about 3 million people might have died. But there was deprivation across the land. This was a benighted land for the period between 1942 and 1945. Uh, But still, you know, Indians kind of stood uh, uh, and contributed to the war effort willy-nilly. So in a sense, everyone felt that after this, the time had come for us to take control of our own destinies. That was a broad sort of sentiment of many of the returning veterans as they came back from various theatres to India. Uh, Now, the fact that the Indian Army's contribution has not been recognised is, I think, partly the accident of post-colonial history. I mean, the newly independent state did not want to play up too much about what the immediate past was in terms of the, you know, the Indian army was seen as one of those institutions which actually enabled the Raj to sort of be there, right? So the, the challenge for the new post-colonial or independent India's leadership was to nationalize this army, to turn it from an imperial instrument to an instrument of a democratic nationalist republic, right? So in that sense, the, the way that they approached the task of dealing with the Indian army was quite different. Now, this did not mean that they did not care about the Indian army. In fact, when the Indian National Army, Subhash Bose's veterans wanted to join the army again, they actually took a call that they would not allow them because they said, you know, it might accentuate differences within the army itself. So there were many steps which were taken uh, along those lines. But independent India was not particularly keen to play up its contributions. But, you know, you do hear echoes of what all of this meant. In a very interesting speech which Jawaharlal Nehru gave during his first visit to the United States in 1949, Uh, You know, he was addressing a group of American businessmen. And at one point in his speech, Nehru becomes very emotional. He says, Britain owes India so much money for the war. And he says, you know, Mr. Churchill has spoken about blood, sweat and tears. But this was the blood, sweat and tears of the Indian people, which went by way of wartime sort of support and contribution to the British. And today, we have to sort of hold out a begging bowl in front of the British to get that money back. You know, why is it that new institutions like the International Monetary Fund, etc., or the United States do not take an interest in ensuring that there is an adequate settlement of wartime debt? That debt in some ways cannot be settled because it has been paid in blood, but India should get its due. So you do hear those kinds of occasional things. But I think it's fair to say that 75 years on, there is a much greater consciousness of India's role in the thing. Subsequent governments, especially over the last uh, 10-12 years, have, I think, taken active steps to, uh, you know, emphasize that India was uh, there at the moment when the new international order was created after the Second World War. Uh, And my book is only one part of what I think is a renaissance in terms of uh, scholarship. People are uh, writing, discovering about this. There are other wonderful books written by Yasmin Khan, Raghu Karnad and others. Uh, which I think has done a lot to bring uh, this story to the front and centre, but much more needs to be done. 
Thank you so much, Srinath, for both your scholarship as well as sharing your historical knowledge about this critical phase in India's freedom struggle, almost the final lap from the start of the war, the tensions that it generated within the nationalists, their principled and ethical dilemmas of wanting to oppose fascism, yet not wanting to support an oppressive colonial empire at home, the diversity that existed within India's political spectrum, and, and in some ways the clever British political moves to deepen these divisions and, and leverage these contradictions, all of which eventually hastened India's independence, but also created the foundations for partition. Thank you for taking our listeners through this period, and we hope you stay with us as we explore the next chapter of India's freedom struggle, Netaji Subhash Chandra Bose and the INA. This episode of 1947 Road to Indian Independence was conceptualized and hosted by Prashant Chha. It was produced by Deepthi Ahuja. The sound design and editing is by Sanju Abraham. For more updates on this podcast, follow HD Smartcast on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube and LinkedIn. To listen to more such podcasts, log on to hdsmartcast.com. This was a Hindustan Times production brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast.